A wise man once told me, never trust your fears. They don't know your strength. He was only like 26. How'd he get so wise so young? Let's find out. Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversation by regular people and for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Consciously, it's Menachem Poznanski. Welcome back. I'm super excited to be back in the saddle, starting off a new, I guess, a season, you could say, uh, after the new year. I'm really excited. We have some great things coming up on Consciously. You get some great projects I'm working on. I introduced a new podcast, a new podcast feed that uh, I am working on with my friend and mentor, Mayor Prager. You can look for that on the same podcast formats that you find this called practically a fabringen actually i'll post the link to that um in this episode so all that going on we got some new episodes new types of episodes coming up i have some new what does that mean episodes planned looking forward to that and i got some great interviews uh some interviews planned, some interviews executed that I've been holding on to and uh, really excited about what's to come. Uh, I want to remind you, if you like the podcast, please follow us on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, all the good places. Uh, give us a review, a five-star review or whatever that is. You can also find us on the Intentional Jew Podcasting Network at intentionaljew.com and uh, also visit us on Instagram, Consciously62 and Facebook and also at The Light Revealed. Those are all the places you can email us at consciouslythepodcast at gmail.com. Questions, comments, concerns, or just to reach out. We uh, love contact. We love talking to you. And finally, uh, pitch the book, Consciously, Six Steps to a Vibrant Relationship with Our Creator, can be found uh, at the links in the episode and also at Jewish Bookstores all over. So here's today. So today we have a great episode. I had the opportunity to, to interview a colleague of mine whose name is Mati Osias. He's a young guy, and he's actually one of the main players behind the Chabad Residential Treatment Center out in L.A., uh, where we ship a lot of guys out from over here in the East Coast and the middle, middle of the country. And Mati is a pivotal player over there. So I'm really excited to introduce Mati to you today. Uh, Mati Osias is a certified drug and alcohol counselor. Um, it's C-A-D-C out there in California. Anyway, and uh, he started off as a counselor at Chabad, and now he, and then ultimately became head counselor at the Chabad Addiction Treatment Center in LA. And currently, he is the program manager. Uh, Mati believes in the philosophy that through the daily impl implementation of spiritual principles and helping others, each individual suffering from active addiction can overcome the hopelessness of the condition and live a truly fulfilling and meaningful life. Um, Mati's a, a great kid. He's a really good kid. He's a really good guy. I've had the opportunity to uh, get to know him a little bit over the over the years, and it was really great uh, to get to know him on a more intimate level in this conversation. So without further ado, uh, here's Mati Osais. Hey, Mati. What's going on, Malcolm? How's it going? It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's my uh, second in-person interview uh, in, uh, or third in-person interview in nine months. So it's, uh, I'm really excited to have somebody in studio and, uh, it's really, uh, really fun. So thanks for doing this. This is really, it's really nice. So, uh, for anyone who doesn't know you, I just, you know, we talked a little bit about what your position is, you know, what your qualifications are, but who are you? So when I actually, when I saw this, this question, um, I felt like it was like the, the universe's way of telling me, like, you, you think you've done so much work on yourself, like, go ahead and answer this one. <laughs> um, 
You know, so so I was thinking about a bunch of different things, but what really came to mind was, um, you know, as far as who I am is, is I'm, I'm definitely an imperfect being. And the reason why it's it's important for me to to always remember that is um, I get this idea that when I make mistakes, you know, I get I get really tough on myself. Mm. Um, but it's actually doing that is actually kind of crazy because it's actually my mistakes that make me a human being. And actually some of my greatest successes have come through some of my biggest mistakes. Um, so I'm definitely, definitely not a perfect being. Um, I got sober when I was 19, has stayed sober since, you know, through the help of some really good people and through uh, spiritual principles. And, you know, I do the best that I can on a daily basis to try to give to other people what was so graciously given to me. Wow, that's a great answer. Okay, so uh, as you know, you said you listened to some of these interviews. And for anyone who's heard of these before, so the idea is to get to know uh, people that are doing stuff, accomplishing things, uh, get to know them on uh, a frame of olam shana nefesh, of uh, spirit, space, and time, and then uh, try to gather together some practical advice from you about, you know, how you're accomplishing what you're accomplishing, and uh, share with the listeners to hear some real guidance. So those, that's the way the interview goes. Um, and we're going to start off by getting to know you a little bit, except maybe not to know the details of your life, but maybe get to know a little bit of the panemius, the in, interior world uh, of your life. So in the frame of space, I asked you to think about a place in the world that's your favorite place or a place that most reflects you or where you feel most yourself. And I asked you to be as explicit as possible. So where, where is that? So when I, when I was, when I was thinking about a place, um, nothing really stuck out, but you know, as I was, I was thinking about this question, there's really one thing that came to mind. And for me, it's not really a, a place. It's more of a setting, you know, because of my addiction, you know, I, when it came to my family, I really thought that I had burned those bridges. You know, I really thought that some of them will never speak to me again. And I thought there was no fixing it, you know, but, um, as life has progressed through sobriety, you know, that's, that's changed. So for me, it's like my favorite place to be is, is sitting around the table with my family, um, which is something I, I, I never thought would happen again. And, uh, just, it, it's a special thing when, when you're able to sit around the table and, and you know that every single person around that table is going to be there for one another no matter what anyone's facing. So for me, I would say it's definitely being in that setting with those people. And those people are your family. Yeah. What's what's striking about what you said is that you weren't sure if your family were those people that would always be there for you no matter what. And then you found out that they were. Always. Always. Was that, is it, do you think that's because of the work that you've done on yourself and the effort that you've made to try to mend that stuff? Or is it because of the quality of their love? I would say both. Both. Yeah. That's what you got. That's what you got to see. A hundred percent. Do you think that it was there before and you weren't able to see it? I think a hundred percent it was there before. I was just so wrapped up in myself that I couldn't see what was right in front of me. Mm. So what you're saying is that because of the work that you did, making right whatever it is that you did to harm them, that opened your eyes to be able to see the fact that they loved you the whole time. Yeah. Wow. Do you think that's always true? I know you, I mean, you do a lot of work with people in, in recovery, people that are trying to uh, make right a lot of time where they have done wrong. Do you think it's always that do you think it's always revealing something that was there the whole time and that they weren't really ready to see so I, I get very scared when it comes to absolutes so right. i definitely can't say always but I'll, I'll definitely say from what i've seen in the, a bunch of the time that is the case most of the time you're saying i mean a lot of the time you're saying a lot of the time yeah that's the case that yeah. there's you get scared of absolutes such a jedi okay so <laughs> all right amazing so I asked you for a space and you gave me a setting, which is nice. It's, a, it's an interesting way to go with it. Everyone goes different ways. Um, the next thing I asked you to do is to think about uh, a folk story or a spiritual proverb that reflects you and 
has given you a guiding principle uh, for your life? So I have uh, on my on my desk in, in, at work, I have a, a pen case that actually my sister gave to me for, for one of my sobriety birthdays. And it says on it, never trust your fears. They don't know your strength. And, and the reason for me why that's, why that's so important is uh, when, I, when I first got sober, I was, I was stuck in like a, a treatment setting. So I was thrown straight into groups um, and I had to, to, to be around people. And, and, and for me, the longest time is, is, is drugs and alcohol is what helped me um, be able to do that, be able to speak in front of people and be okay with, with being me. And I, I didn't have that. And it was like, I wouldn't even say it was like, a, it was a fear. It was just like, there was this terror. Like when, when I was sitting in a group setting, like I would pray to not be called on, to not have to speak in front of other people. And just to, to add on to that, I remember like I was at, uh, went to this, this meeting, I believe it was on a, like a Thursday night and it was like 150 people there. And, and I was sitting in the chair and like got to a point where I literally like I was having a panic attack, um, but my ego was too big to actually say anything to anybody. So I left the meeting and there the we had a van that was a little bit older. So the, the locks were busted. So I open up the door, I, I go in and... Uh, I was sitting down and I was, I was thinking and, and, and just ruminating. And none, none of the thoughts were good, but, I, but it definitely felt better than when I was inside. And um, when all the guys came back to the van after the meeting was over, I just pretended I was asleep and, and whatever. So for me, like speaking in front of other people was never going to happen. Um, me doing something like this was never going to happen. But, but it came to a point where there was something that was in me. is just like, you're not going to be able to survive like this. Like you got to try to open up a little bit and... And, and although it's it's super scary, you, you got to give it a shot. Um, and then slowly but surely, like I, I'd speak in a group, you know, I'd, I'd open up, and turns out nothing bad happened. And uh, you know, you know, through that, through through pushing through that fear and allowing that strength to come out, it, it's actually th those same group settings where I was petrified to even share in. I'm actually now leading those groups. Right. And I see that really with anyone who, who pushes through those fears on a consistent basis. It's, it's crazy what can be accomplished. So that for me, that line really sticks out. So what's what's the guiding principle? Is that if, if, if you can push through that fear, you'd be amazed at the strength that you have and what you can actually accomplish once the fear is removed. And, and the fear is removed once you push through it on a consistent basis, on a consistent basis. Absolutely. How do you do that, though? I'm saying people encounter fear all the time and it uh it, how, did, how did you do it? I'm saying you talked about that meeting that you went to where you snuck out and pretended to go sleep in the van. You know, how, how did you have the courage to break through and then stick with it? So at a certain point, like like speaking about certain things are, are a must, right? And a lot of times we speak about those things and, and then we'll get to the answer. But at a certain point, it really is a matter of just doing it, of taking that leap of faith. Um, and for me, the reason I was able to do it because I was sick and tired of living the way that I was living. So I just gave it a shot. Um, but at a certain point, it, it's really just about doing it. And wh what do you think stops people? Like, because they're just not willing to do it? Uh, I, I believe I, I can speak about what stops me. Right. Was that um, I, I created this monster in my head of what could actually happen, right? If I, if I speak out, I might embarrass myself. And, and all of a sudden, you know, um, people start laughing and then, you know, I'm going to be stuck in myself even more than I already am. Um, but I started realizing when I actually would share, like nobody laughed, um, nobody judged. And, and if they did judge, it was probably because they had something more going on with them than it would be me. Um, so, so really giving it a shot and seeing that, you know, the fears weren't necessarily real. Was there, was there like a moment that inspired you to take that leap of faith? Like how did it happen the first time? I, I just, there was something that, that within me. Right. That was just like, you can't keep living in this fear. You're not going to be able to live any sort of normal life 
not being able to speak in front of people. And, and I, I really wanted to change. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to feel different. And I wanted to really live a different life. So for you, fear is kind of like a very core challenge that to, to overcome. Right there in the core, 100%. And your experience with substance abuse and all the things that led to was a way to manage that fear. Correct. Do you, do you remember like when that started? Super young. I just remember I was always, uh, I was always terrified. Like I remember like I, uh, when I would need to, let's say go to a friend's house and I wanted to see if they were home, I was like embarrassed to be the one knocking on the door. Right. right? So I would have somebody else do it. So this, this fear thing started from, from a, a really young age. And is it still there? Like, do you still feel it with you or have you just overcome it? I'm pretty sure, you know, like most of the time it's gone. It's gone. Yeah. And, and it's through like that experience of faith of just trying and seeing what happens and finding out that the boogeyman is not really as scary as he seems. Turns out that I was the one creating the boogeyman. That's what you found out. When I found that out, yeah. And I know you don't like absolutes, but how often is that true of other fears? For me, it, it's almost all the time. Almost all the time? Almost all the time. For a Jedi master, that's interesting. For, I said for me personally, <laughs> going back to my own experiences, that's what I could look at. That's what you see. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. So for, that's what, but that's what, you've, that's what you've seen over your experience over the last seven years is that, you know, when you have fear and it's, grip, and it's gripping you, um, more likely than not, it's a boogeyman that you're creating. More likely than not, yeah. If you were, when you encounter like a fear that's not a boogeyman, what do you, what do you like, I would imagine that uh, powering through is not so useful. No, look, there, there are certain fears where it's like, I have a fear of doing something because it's actually a bad idea to do it. Right. So then pushing through would, would not be a great idea. Right. Which is why I mentioned before, it's like I have to speak to people uh -huh. to actually get to the solution. But once I know the solution, that's when it's just about doing it. Hmm. So you mean it's like relying on other people to give you what guidance and perspective? I, I think we all, most of us need guidance. Yeah, no, for sure. You know, so once we get that guidance and we know that it's true because it's, it's the people that we trust to have guided us to the correct spot multiple times, um, then it's, then it's just about doing it. Mm. And those people that you relied or you rely upon, they're able to tell you like, this is a boogeyman you need to power through. Yeah. So that started off when you were in treatment. So I guess you trusted the people there because they were professionals. Like what, what, what made you trust them? So for me, um, I, I didn't buy into this whole thing, honestly, like I, I wanted to change. Um, but they, they would, you know, where I was, I was hearing different ideas that, that really, you know, didn't make sense to me. Like the, the solution that they were offering, I, I honestly thought it was a bunch of crazy people, right? Because I'm coming in there um, and they're talking to me about these ideas of, of, of powerlessness and turning your will and your life over. I'm like, what is this, missionary camp? Like, I didn't, I didn't get it. But it, what I was starting to see is that the people that were there a little bit longer than me, that were actually doing the work, they were changing. So I had a choice, right? You could sit here with your ideas, right? And be miserable to the point where you don't even want to be here anymore. Or you can actually do some things different and, and see what happens. So that's really what, what got me to buy in. So what you're saying is that it wasn't, it wasn't per se um, the people, the objective people who could give you advice, who could inspire you to power forward and tell you that it was okay to power forward. It was the people just ahead of you that you saw things working that gave you the impetus, the inspiration. Yeah. Cause I, I, you know, these people were saying things, right. Let's say the, the professionals and it was, it could have been great advice. It probably was great advice. You know, looking back at it now, it, it was, but I just, I couldn't believe that they understood what I was going through at the time. Mm -hmm. And, and, and those people who were actually changing, 
I knew they did, right? Because of the experiences that they shared. So, so it's like a combination between those two. Yeah. It's like the people with a lot of experience, uh, maybe some training that can give you objective guidance, but then also the people that are perhaps similar to you, but maybe just beyond where you are and watching their example. Right. So it was the, the I would say the, the professional advice, right? From the people that were working there. But the what proved that that advice actually worked were the guys that were ahead of me. Right. Sounds like a pretty good prescription. I, I guess what that means is that in order to face fear, you have to have two things. You have to have people whose advice you trust and people who you relate to that inspire you. Yeah. I, whenever I try to do it alone, it uh, tends not to work out too well. Mm. So, Mati, so in that 19 years that uh, previous to you know the time you've been talking about, you must have encountered plenty of hopelessness. What was an episode in your life that gave you permission to be hopeful? So for me, it was, you know, I was convinced that that the suggestion that these people were giving me was not going to work. And, you know, everything I had tried in the past was, was done. Um, so I spent a lot of time, whether it be in treatment um, and, and, and even, you know, shortly afterwards, it was like, I just, I, I couldn't see this thing working. Um, but it came to a point where I was just like, I, I got to give it a shot. Let me see what happens. Um, and each step, each suggestion that was given to me, um, I honestly thought was, was crazier than the next. So, I, but I was just like, I, you know what? It, it sounds crazy. I don't really believe it, but these people are telling me that if I do it, something's going to happen. So I, I, I gave it a shot. And one of the suggestions that these people offer is, uh, do an inventory. And then after you do this inventory, you're going to read this inventory. And if you read this inventory, you're going to feel a freedom that you've never felt before. And I just kept hearing this, whether that be at meetings, that would be in, in, in all these different settings. And um, I was like, okay. But they were like, one of the conditions for the freedom is you have to be completely open and honest. Right? If, you, if you hold on to certain things, um, you're not going to get the freedom that these people have. So I was like, you know what? Okay, fine. There was a, a a few things where I was just like, I thought I was going to take to the grave with me. And I was like, you know what? Don't pretend to do this. Like, either you're going to do it or you're not. You're going to be fully open and honest or just say you're not doing it. So I decided I was going to be fully open and honest. I, I, I did the, did what they suggested, got everything out there. And once I was done, I was, I was waiting for this freedom. And it actually happens to be that that night, the night where I, I read my inventory, was probably one of the worst nights I've ever had because everything that I've ever held on to whether that be the secrets everything that's ever happened in the past or anything that I've done started was, was at the forefront of my mind and it just kept playing over and over and over again and I was like I guess I proved this program wrong either I proved it wrong or maybe I'm I'm just so messed up that it's not doesn't work for me wow and that's an intense level of hopelessness yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty bad. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't fun, to say the least. And uh, I remember the, the next day, actually, I was at, uh, I was working at that point. I was living in the sober living, and I, I got paid. And I was looking at, uh, I was looking at the money, and I'm just like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Right? So I had a decision. Either I was going to do something really stupid, or I was going to go back to the place and talk to some people. And the only thing I could attribute it to, the only reason why I can attribute the fact that I actually went back to the sober living and, and didn't go do something stupid was uh, something you know, much bigger than me because I wanted to go. I went back to the sober living, spoke to some people, and, and, and actually turns out that not everybody has that experience right away. 
it turns out that if you actually open up about certain things that you've been holding on to your entire life, you might not feel so great right away. Right. Um, so about like a, a week or two later, I progressed in the, in the work and, and I woke up one day and I, uh, there's this prayer in step seven that, uh, that I was suggested to, to say, remember I woke up, said the prayer, was walking to work. And as I was walking to work, something shift, there was, there was this, this change in perception. I, I believe it was the accumulation of all the work that I had done in treatment with the work. Um, building up to that point mm-hmm. and, and, and it just, it just really hit. And it was like the first time that I could remember that I was actually okay being me. And what, what reason why I, I, I use that story for, um, what kind of gives you hope and where it comes from is that if, if these suggestions, right, if this work can work for me when one, I, I truly believed it wouldn't. And two, at the lowest point in my life, then, then I'm pretty sure that there's nothing I can face in life that work won't get me through. And so it was the hopeless. It was the hopefulness that you realized that you would be able to face anything that came at you, and be okay with being me through it. That's a that's a powerful story because it's like, um, particularly for somebody who's so young. You're you know you enter treatment and you know people are telling you all of these stories you know and telling you how amazing it is for them. And but one of the challenges. Is, that I often find when working with people in recovery is that sometimes the people that's speaking happen to be on a pink cloud that day. And, you know, they're giving over a message, which is very hopeful. It's very nice. It's very exciting. But practically, if you've worked with people in recovery for long enough, you know that they're going to they're gonna hit a wall too and they're going to be in darkness because all human beings hit darkness. So people hear those messages and then they start to feel like, I'm supposed to feel that way. And you're, what you're talking about is that it doesn't, that's not always the lived experience that people have. Sometimes things take time. Sometimes everyone has their, their story, their, you know, their experience, their journey through that process. Yeah. You got to let everybody have their own experience. Is that a message that you try to give over to people? A hundred percent. I don't want somebody to have to go through what I went through during that period. During that period in between when you finished like that intensive inventory and self-disclosure work. And when you had that moment walking to work. A hundred percent. I mean, what's, what's incredibly powerful about that whole story is that you didn't give up. You know, I think most people listening, I mean, I'm from, for sure myself would be sitting here like if I was there and I, they told me do this work and you're going to get this experience and then I don't get that experience, you know, I'm checking out, you know, it's very, very hard, but you stayed. To me, that says a lot about probably the benefits that you were receiving from all that work before that maybe you weren't necessarily conscious of. A hundred percent. Like that you had evolved and grown more than you even knew because if you hadn't, you would, like you said, you would have just checked out. You would have just gone and done something terrible that day instead of going back to the sober living and asking for help. Well, without that work, going back to sober living wouldn't even been a consideration. Right. So yeah, I would definitely attribute it to the work done previously. And 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 you said that the that the choice going back to the sober living, you feel like that was a a God moment of some sort or some kind of power greater than yourself leading you there. For me, looking at it, it, it has to be. I Meaning you can't come to any other conclusion other than... No, 100%. I, I was looking at every other time that I was faced with a similar situation, and every other time I had chosen, I would have chosen not to go back to the sober living. Right. Right? Um, but, but this specific time, the only difference was, was the work that, that had been done. So that's why I would attribute it to that. And, and, and through that, I believe that, that this, this, this power really allowed me to get through it. Mm. So it's the power that was present in the work. A hundred percent. Wow. So are you cautious when you're working, let's say with young people that are very susceptible to kind of like getting that excitement 
buying into that kind of like message, like everything's going to be amazing. Everything's going to be fantastic. What are the kind of steps that you take to caution people? How do you, you know, I, I always struggle with like, you know, you don't want to like, you know, your kid or my kid or somebody I'm working with or, you know, whatever it is, they're excited about something. You don't want to like diminish their excitement at the same time you do, you know, you don't want to, you know, they're, they're, they're running on fumes. It's like, uh, it's hard to, it's hard to watch. Do you, do you have that experience? So, so I'll tell you, it's, it's, uh, when, when people get the excitement and they continue on with the work, there's usually something that comes up, right. That kind of, I would say diminishes that a little bit, whether that, you know, they face the amends and they think everything's going to be great. And you tell them like, look, man, not everybody's going to be super excited that you're sober. Like it's, it's amazing. Right. But, but some people are going to be hurt and they're going to express that. Um, so a lot of times people will come, they'll go to that, through that process and then they'll come back and they'll be like, um, you know, this was tough. And, and, and they kind of get, get a little bit of a sense of reality. Like you're going to live a really good life, right? but you're not going to live a perfect life. You know, things are going to happen. So they, they kind of see it through their own experiences and, and we kind of are there to, you know, guide them. So you have to like pull them back a little bit and bring them back down to earth. So I would say kind of their experiences bring them back down to earth, but when they come back down to earth, we're there for them. So you, are you always as a, I guess, as a professional, as somebody who's kind of working actively in that kind of sphere, are you, are you actively looking for that? Are you like, do you have to like wait for it or it just happens and then you hope they come to you for help? How does that work? So it, it really depends on the situation. Like if I'm, if I'm working with somebody in the treatment setting, right, right then I'm usually, I'm usually staying into contact with them. So I, I know where they're holding and I kind of know like, okay, this person's at this point, let's say, like I mentioned the immense process, like, okay, there's something that's going to be come up. So a, I can either talk to them beforehand right. um, or B, I can be there when it hits. It's usually a mix of both. Right. Um, but for like someone who I'm taking through the work on the outside, it's usually they'll give me a call and they'll tell me that, you know, this is what I'm facing. And then we'll meet up for coffee and, and, and we'll discuss it. So as a professional, you anticipate it. And as a non-professional, as just a person helping other people, you kind of trust that they'll come to you and they need to talk about it. Which one's harder? I, I think it depends on who you're who you're working with. I, I can't really who say the that, which ones is. are. Yeah. Okay. So now that we know you a little bit, get to know you a little bit, um, we're going to try to tease out some some meaningful suggestions that other people can hear and perhaps take. So I ask you to think about a daily practice that you have that you feel contributes to your personal success. Uh, it could be one that nobody knows about, maybe even particularly one that no, nobody knows about, but it doesn't have to be secret, but maybe something especially um, if it's one that most people might take for granted, but you found in retrospect, even though it seems easy or simple or not a big deal, you found in retrospect, like, oh, that really made a difference for me. So when I, when I was thinking about this question, there, there were so many things that, that came up. Um, you know, there's, you know, the 12-step the work, there's, there's therapy, there's um, doing a nightly inventory, there, there's, a, there's a mindfulness meditation. There's, there's so many things that came up, but really came to mind that the, the one thing that I would really attribute is getting comfortable in uncomfortability on a daily basis. So like there's, there's certain things that I'll face, let's say like today, right? Today is going to be doing something like this. This is new. This is, I, I don't know how this is going to go. Um, so kind of getting comfortable while knowing I'm going to be uncomfortable doing this. But then there's like, you know, smaller things where it's like, there's, there's usually like one or two things throughout the day, let's say having like a conversation with somebody stepping up when I need to step up or, or not speaking up when, when that's the proper thing to do. Um, so what I would say is when doing that on a daily basis, um, you know, compounded over a, a period of time, it really is kind of amazing what actually can be accomplished when I do that, when I get comfortable being uncomfortable. 
So you, is that like a mantra that you tell yourself? A hundred percent. Like it's going to be uncomfortable and we're going to do it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And then you, and then you're saying doing that in a compounded way builds success or self-esteem or seven years ago, if somebody would have told me that, by the way, you're going to be sitting here in a room with Wanakam, you're going to be doing a podcast with him. I'd be like, you're, you're out of your mind. Right. I can't even speak normally. So when I get comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, it opens get, the door. I get to do things like this. Okay. Um, if you had to pick one thing about one relationship that makes that relationship awesome and work, uh, what would it be? What are the steps you take to foster that? So when what, what really came to mind with this one, I would have to go with um, my dad. Now he, uh, he, he passed away about five years ago. And um, he passed away with, with, with 29 years of sobriety. And oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so he, uh, what he really wanted to do, especially on, on, in the later part of his life, was was be someone who, who the people in, in the community can go to and, and um, not feel judgment and, and feel like um, they can get that support and, and somebody who's, who's always going to tell them the truth. And, and an, another thing for him was that you know this, this, this whole God idea, like it wasn't, it wasn't an idea. It, it, this was a fact in his life. And because it was a fact in his life, like he was able to meet all situations with honesty and integrity. And uh, for me, the way that, that, that I connect to him is really by following the path that I believe that he, he paved out for many people, including myself. Um, so like w when I live by those principles, honesty and integrity and, and, and being that comfort for other people or attempting to be that comfort for other people, I really feel like I'm doing this side by side with him. Um, so obviously there's times where, where I'm struggling, where I'll go and, and I'll sit in my car and I'll talk to him. But I would say like, like on a daily basis, how I really, really keep that connection going is, is by following that path and walking side by side with him. So your dad was sober your whole life. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you about that? Go ahead. So what was that like? Um, what was that like? So he, he didn't impress upon me any of these like 12 step ideas, right? right. He, there was the honesty and integrity part. Right. Um, but especially while I was going through my own thing, like he, he knew the deal. Well, did, did you know he was in recovery? Yeah. At what point did he tell you? So I kind of knew since I was a kid. Since like you were a kid. Was, yeah. He was very open about it. Okay. Since you were a little kid. Since I was a little kid. Yeah. And then you started having your own journey in substance abuse or whatever. Yeah. And, but, and, but he didn't try to impress those things on you. No. What, what was it like knowing that you were, I guess, in a parallel process to what he had gone through? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really understand it. Like, I didn't really understand this whole um, recovery community idea, right? I knew that he was a part of it, right. but I didn't really know much about it. Um, so I, I really didn't, didn't think that deep into it. At, at what point did you kind of realize, like, that you were on a similar path to the path that he had taken? Not until I got sober. Not until after. Yeah. After you were in treatment. Yeah. How far into treatment did you, did it take you to realize that? Was it like right away or was it more down the road? Uh, I would say a couple months in. Like a couple months in? Yeah, once I really like started looking at my own experiences and things like that, I started realizing that uh, I guess the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. Mm. And, and and you were sober two years when he passed away? I was sober a couple of years, yeah. Yeah, wow. And so what was that like being sober together at the same time? That was amazing. Yeah, it was it was honestly one of the best things that ever happened. It was unbelievable. It's like, first of all, to have a dad, right, um, it is amazing, right, to have a dad who lives by amazing principles. Um, but then also having a dad who has 29 years of sobriety. So like, I'll call him, I'll be like, um, Ta, I'm really struggling. I'm, you know, I'm on 10, 11 and 12. And I'm, 
trying to figure these things out. And he's like, dude, you're an alcoholic. Back up. Go back to step one. Keep things simple. Work your way back up. And, and he was just able to really see through everything. Whenever I complicated things, he always had his, it, was not, it wasn't anything profound, but it was just honest and straight to the point. And, you know, to have that was, was, a, was a real gift. Wow. Must have been devastating, obviously, when he passed away. But yeah, crushing. How, how long did it take you to kind of recover, I guess, to, to the degree that you have? I'd say a year. A year? Yeah. To mourn through that? Yeah. And, and you talk about keeping your relationship vibrant with him through, you know, acting out these principles that you knew that he was living by. Which, which I assume would be like advice that you could give anybody. I mean, it doesn't, it's not exclusive to recovery per se, you know, saying anybody that lost a parent, you know, f or lost anyone, mm -hmm. you know, figuring out what's important to them and then uh, dedicating yourself to those principles allows you to be connected to that person in a very deep and meaningful way. hundred um, percent. So I, at, at what point did that begin? I would say after the year. At the end of that year. Yeah. Did that change your experience of recovery? Like by inserting him, I guess, in, it, in that way? I would say it, it made it more meaningful. Made it more meaningful. Yeah. It, I mean, it's interesting because it's, it's on the one hand, I would imagine your recovery before previous to that was about uh, staying alive, you know, staying sober. And, and now it becomes this great vehicle to connect and bond and draw his presence into your life. Absolutely. How does that play out when you're bringing that message to other people? Is it different? Is it weird? Is it, is there a part that maybe you, Feel like you can't share with other people? Is it? I mean, is it? Does that change anything? Uh, no, it was actually. Um, you know, I uh, there was someone who who my dad was helping, and um, years ago, and you know he he happened to have walked into to one of my groups, and I, you know when I give a group, I get I get very passionate because because I, I love this and I really want to um, impart what was given to me, and after the group, he he came to me and he's like, when you were sharing, like your dad was speaking. And to me, that was that was really one of the most amazing things that, that anybody has said to me. And it really kind of like opened my eyes. It's like, um, you know, he really is right there with me. Those principles are right there. Wow. What a, a special thing. So you're doing all these groups. You talk about doing groups. You got young kids coming into your treatment or maybe adults. Um, and you're in a position of authority. And you are 26 years old. You're seven years clean and sober. Uh, that gives you a... A, you know, a fair amount. It's not 29 years, but it's, uh, for young people, seven years is a lifetime. So that must give you like a, a certain amount of street cred. How do you stay grounded? Like what's something, what's a mantra that you kind of repeat that keeps you grounded, keeps you humble? So, so this was my favorite question. You know, one of the first things we, that I've seen, um, the people who, who have been in recovery for a little bit, um, you know, in part about, uh, in part upon other people is, you know, when you're struggling, pick up your phone, right? Um, so as far as staying grounded, I can, like I mentioned before, I can go into therapy and I can go into these other things, but, but sometimes for me, it, it's really as simple as pick up the phone and check in with somebody else. It's like one of my biggest fears is that my ego gets big enough to where I'm suggesting these things to people, but not actively actually practicing what I'm suggesting. So for me, it's like, like get real. You know, you're, you're, you're just another human being and pick up the phone and check in with somebody else. So it's like not buying into any type of narrative in your head that says that you're better than doing those things. Absolutely. Reaching out for help, asking for help. The truth is I am no better, right? Just because I'm, I get to do certain things in my life doesn't mean I'm actually better than anybody else. One thing that I've learned, right, is that I don't have to make 
a lot of mistakes if I choose to listen to other people who will impart their mistakes, right, to me. So when I discuss things with people who have, who have been here for longer than I have been, um, who have much more experience than I have, they'll tell me certain things. And they'll be like, don't fall into this, right? And, and, I, and I, once they say that, I'm able to see it clearly. So for me, the reason why I truly believe it is because, is you know, I, I, after hearing it from other people, I'm able to see how that, how that can easily happen. So people that are, I guess, ahead of you in the, in the game, uh, not, not that it's a game, but whatever, that are ahead of you in life and in, in their recovery have told you to be cautious of, you know, losing sight, of being normal, of being just a regular guy. Absolutely. Another uh, bozo on the bus, as they say. So that's become something important for you. It, it, it's one of the keys, actually. And, and it's one of the keys. Yeah. Keys to what? To being successful. Keys to, I think, one, being successful, but also, like, being my true self. Like, and, and, and one of the interesting things that you talked about was specifically focusing on practicing what you preach, meaning specifically taking up um, the suggestions that you're putting out to other people. For me, it's like I, it, it really means nothing if I'm not practicing these things, right? Right. For me, an experience that I see that works has to have depth and weight to it. And it only has depth and weight to it if that person is actually practicing what they're discussing. And you want what you're discussing to have depth and weight. I would hope so. But isn't there a point at which you maybe get past things? Or is there a point that maybe you get past certain things and then you're not doing them anymore, but you're giving that advice to other people? But if you've gotten certain past, past certain things, then you are still practicing those principles. It just may look different today. So what's an example of that? Like if you tell somebody to reach out to other people, or, or what, what is an, if you, if you can think of an example of something like that, where like you're in early stage, maybe a client is in early stage recovery and they're doing something and then they kind of move past that and now they have to practice that principle at another level. Oh, simple. So for actually something that came up. So in, uh, when we get to, to, to step 11, right, it mentions that you should keep the thoughts, your will be done, not mine throughout the day. Right. Um, so when I first got there, that's what I did. Right. But what actually ended up happening after a period of time, it was that it actually became part of my thinking. Um, so if somebody would ask me, do you keep the thoughts, your will not mine be done throughout the day? The answer is no today, but it actually has become a way of thinking as opposed to just needing to think those thoughts consciously over and over again. Right. So that's, that's what would be the one example that I can think of. Right. So now. then where does that practice take you? Like what's next? Meaning like where, so where am I? So where does that lead to? Like, well, so what's next after that? So, right. So somebody, right. So you're talking about like the use of like a, almost a mantra to kind of like, mm -hmm. um, teach your brain an idea. And then the, the idea becomes kind of ingrained and becomes kind of part of your basic attitude and perspective, right? So in, in this idea about your will not mine be done or praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out, that's like that frame of the mm -hmm. 11th step. Where, where, what was next after that? Like what came after that? So I would say today it, it's an automatic way of thinking, right? So when it comes to, let's say, um, when I'm faced with a decision, um, what, I'm, what I'm automatically going to do is I'm not actually thinking your will be done, but when I'm considering it, I'm like, okay, what aligns with my principles and what doesn't, right? And then I'm going to go and make that decision, mm -hmm. right? So it's actually become automatic, I would say. That's the next stage to that. I, what's interesting is that you, you, you draw a parallel between your principles and God's will. So for me, it was, it was, a, there was a clear you know, differentiation between you know, the things that I tried to do that I thought were going to work that didn't work. And then there was this path that, that people had paved, right? 
which they said was, was the will of something bigger than themselves. And it turns out that that worked, right? So that's why I always keep that clear parallel. And, and But you kind of operate from an assumption that those principles which you're living out is the will of God. The will of something bigger than me, definitely. The will of something greater than you. And is the idea there that you're living in God's will or that you're just living a way that works for you? <laughs> the idea is that I'm trying. That you're trying yeah. to live in God's will. Yeah. Okay, that's a good answer. I like that. Okay, so so inherent in the work of working with other people and of being an alcoholic and of being a human being is facing, you know, downs and burnout. How do you recharge? What are things you do to kind of, what, what do you do when you wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Uh, what do you do when you're, you know, you just don't have the energy? So as, as far as burnout? Yeah. Go away. Like literally for me, it's like, go away. And, and, and there's really two things that I have to keep in mind is one, world's going to survive without you. Like if you have nothing left in the tank, get on a plane, go somewhere, go recharge. Um, everybody's going to be okay. And, and, and number two is that I cannot give something that I don't have. So if I'm burnt out and I got nothing left in the tank, then what, what am I doing? And they actually, the truth is, is that if I got nothing left in the tank and I have nothing to give at that point, and I try, and I, and I try to push through that, I'm actually probably causing more harm than anything else. So back up, go away, go recharge, whatever that is for each individual, and come back refreshed and, and keep doing good work. Are you, are you the kind of person who is susceptible to retreating when it's not appropriate? Meaning? Like, are you worried that maybe you'll run away when it's not, a, it's not the right thing, or that's not really something that... It's not really something I'm, I'm too concerned with. It, it's more of... You know, when, when I feel like the energy is really, really depleted, it's like, okay, I think it's time to step back for a little bit. One of the things you said that's very powerful is that uh, you said, you know, not everyone's everyone's going to be fine if I walk away. I guess sometimes it feels like, you know, we're very important in our own minds, but also like people rely on us. We don't want to let them down. A hundred percent. But if, if the people are relying on us, when they, when they come and, and they're asking for, for, let's say, advice or guidance and something, they're relying that that's coming from a place of where we're in a healthy state of mind, right? So if I'm actually sitting in those settings in an unhealthy state of mind and imparting advice that probably shouldn't be imparted, um, that's actually, I, I have a responsibility to make sure that doesn't happen. Mm. It's quite a journey, Mati. It's been interesting. It's been interesting. It's been a blessing. It's been a blessing. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay, that's it, we're done. All right. You did great. Thanks for listening to the Consciously Podcast. Consciously is a project of the Living Room, which is a division of Our Place New York, and made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family, memory of Tsipora Basravaro. The host of Consciously is Menachem Posnansky and produced by Chaim Cohn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher or wherever else you get your podcasts. We sincerely welcome and appreciate your feedback, so please feel free to email us or on our Instagram and Facebook pages. Bye.